The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited, trading on the CNSX as XBR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur Resources is a Toronto-based emerging junior gold producer focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines that include a gold mine currently producing in Zacatecas, Mexico. Dudley Baker is the editor of CommonStockWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great to be here, Ellis. What do you make of this crazy market? Looks like we're going to have a QE to infinity times two again. Gold was down for a bit, then it jumped up $50 at the end of one of the trading days last week, and now we're cruising around where we were at about two weeks ago. Should we just turn off the TV and ignore everything? You know, unbelievable. Still just a lot of noise going on. Yeah, gold was down, down pretty good, well inside of 1300 an ounce, right? I had an early trip planned into Guadalajara to the U.S. consulate to get some work done, pick up my passport that was being renewed. Later in the afternoon, I finally get online and I thought, holy smokes, what the hell has just happened here? Because if anything, I was really anticipating gold to continue to go down. And now it's like, truly, where in the hell are we? It seems like, yes, this QE stuff has got to go on almost forever, you know? We we all, I think, intuitively knew that the economy was not strong, so what's going to happen if the Fed's back off? But, of course, we're all in our sector thinking gold, silver, resource stocks, what's in this for us? The best thing I know to do at the moment is not to get too excited, even, even with this monster move up in gold. So, you know, we've been up, as we're recording this, to almost 1376 So we've done almost, since yesterday morning, oh, a good $80 an ounce turnaround from down to up. Pretty soft day here today, a lot of daily volatility. Looking at a chart, until we can get above our previous high that we had back in August, which is around 1430 to 1440 range on the charts. You know, I've just got to assume that this is just kind of still a lot of noise going on here in the middle. So I'm still thinking the technicals have to come back in the picture. We've got to look at the charts. That's kind of my mindset. I don't know what to make of this whole thing. It does seem like the Fed's decision is in our court. It is a positive for our sector for gold and silver and shares down the road to be substantially higher. So I want to be positive. But I think technically we've got to get over some serious overhead resistance before we can say we're off to the races again. 
We keep looking for opportunities in the resource sector, and we find them. And then we've got to deal with these penny stock market makers that are selling into the gains all the time. Oh, yeah. No, it's just a tough gig still on the small, the low price shares, especially in the resource sector where these companies get down to a penny or two and then decide that we need to do a reverse split. It's like, I hate these damn reverse splits. I just saw the announcement yesterday when I got back that another one of the small uh, companies that I own is doing a one for 10 rollback. It just greatly upsets me. I'm infuriated with management. In this case, I think this little company is still sitting with 5 to $6 million of cash in the bank. Stupid. Why don't they just buy their own stock then? I don't get it. The reason they're going to do a rollback, in case we need to raise more money, you know, yada, yada, yada. Not in case of. So obviously the stock's off. Well, maybe it was at three and a half cents, and now we're down to two cents, and it's traded as low as a penny and a half. And it's like there's a lot of what I'm going to call just incompetent management, incompetent decision makers out there. These guys own a fair amount of shares themselves in this company. We're talking about this is not a sponsor. This is nobody that even knows who we're talking about here now, and let's just keep it as an unknown company. But I'm just ragging on the management of, of some of the small companies that feel like they've got to do a rollback. If there's a rollback, it needs to be done in the moment for a specific reason. And if that means, yeah, if you're at a penny or two and you've got to do a rollback to raise any more money, I get that. Don't like it, but at least we can understand it. The only rollback that I ever known that has truly worked out but it was done for a specific reason. A lot of the listeners will know the Sandstorm Gold. So that was done oh, when Sandstorm was selling at about $1. They wanted to list on the New York Stock Exchange, so they did a one-for-five rollback. Not to raise money, but to get the share price up so they could qualify for the listing on, on the New York Exchange. And that would worked out. And the shares did well. You know, now the shares have come back down into the $6 range with all this noise going on here in the resource sector. But in the moment, that rollback was done for a genuine business reason, not just raising money. That's literally one of the few exceptions that has worked out on a rollback. But normally, my philosophy has always been when you see news of a rollback, just sell. Immediately sell your position. Because after the rollback, the shares are just going to trickle back down. The problem that all investors, including myself, we caught up with is say, if we've got a few of these small companies and say it's selling for, you know, you're down to a penny or two pennies, and now they're going to do a rollback, what are you going to get out of this? If you decide to sell your position, whether you've got 100,000 shares or a million shares of any given stock, and it's sitting there at a penny or two, it becomes a really difficult decision. Do you just say, hey, the hell with you, I'm out of here? Or do you just, you know, especially if you deem that the company maybe has one or two good projects, you know, expiration projects, it's a tough call, especially down here in the in the penny, penny and a half range. Say, if you just had 100,000 shares, well, what, you're going to net out $1,000? So it, the inclination is that, well, just hang in there. But I think what they do is they destroy a lot of the potential upside leverage after they do the rollback. You know, our idea of a, of a five to 10 bagger approach kind of all goes out the window after you do the rollback and then after the shares drop back down again. It's really a tough, tough situation to wrap your hands around, and that's why 99 times out of 100, the best decision is sell on the news 
just get the hell out of here and go look for a better opportunity. So tough situation, tough marketplace, especially with these little companies. So, you know, you don't see too many rollbacks in the United States. Not that it couldn't happen. It's just a different game. It, it seems like it's something much more common in the resource sector. On a positive note, our sponsor Excalibur Resources is going to make use of their tailings. Yeah, you know, with Excalibur, XBR, they had a press release. So we were on the property a little over a week ago and had a great trip. And then we came out with some news. We were shown a big area at the property here in Mexico, which were old stockpiling from literally going back for decades. I mean, this is an old project and property that we visited here. This was basically all grown over with weeds and, and all kind of stuff, but it like went on forever. But this was pointed out to us. And then lo and behold, now they've made the decision, which I think is a great decision, to start utilizing these old stockpiles because they've had analysis done and it's an extremely high content of the gold and silver. So it just makes so much sense. So they've got their own mill. They were still doing a little bit of maintenance on it when we were there. But I think if they're not ready to go right now, that it's going to be soon. By using the old stockpilings, there's your uh, future revenue right there because it was great assay results. So I think that is uh, incredibly positive news for Excalibur. Well, it's immediate revenue practically as soon as they take it to the mill. They don't have to get it out of the ground. They can just take it straight to market and not have to go to the public market for whatever cash that might bring in. I just think this is really a, a positive. This is just an off-the-cump comment here, but it's go to a geologist that was with me on the trip. It just roughly estimated that they probably got enough stockpilings there for maybe a year and a half or so, maybe a year and a half, two years to run through the mill. That's really cool. I mean, there's a lot of exploration potential on Excalibur, right there where we were at. But instead of having to worry about how do we continue to fund this future exploration, this literally is cash in the bank. And as soon as they start running these uh, stockpilings through the mill, this is going to become instant revenue. I don't know how to quantify that, exactly what that means. But let's say for a small company, this is great to be generating revenues off of these projects to help defer your future costs and exploration costs. So to me, when I saw that, I said, Oh, my goodness. So that may have been brought up in conversation on the trip, and possibly I missed it. But I thought, man, this is great news. I think that is great news for Excalibur. And it's a small company. It's not a lot of liquidity right now. It probably, when I looked this morning, had not traded today. It shows you a lot of the smaller companies, there's not a lot of liquidity there. You might say, well, oh, no, I don't want to buy a company like that with no liquidity. See, this has never bothered me. Because you just have to know how do you handle this. So the way you do it, you say, yeah, I love saying with Excalibur. I love the Excalibur story. And so if you want to own it, what you do is you just you decide what do you want to pay. I think it's probably bidding $0.18, cents, asking 20 If you want to pay the market at 20 but you do a limit order. And you say if you want to buy 5,000 shares or 10,000 or 20,000 or 100,000, whatever you want to buy, it's always, always, always a limit order. And me personally, I always make my transactions good till canceled. Even if I think that I may get an execution in one day, it costs you nothing, nothing more. So I like to always do limit orders, good till cancel, specify that price, 
And I know at that point, there'll be no surprises. And frequently, I'll get those orders filled rather quickly. I just think uh, Excalibur is working out to be a good story. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is proudly sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited. Excalibur Resources is one of the best performing mining companies trading on CNSX under the symbol XBR and at the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur is focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines. It's a unique strategy called micro-mining, seeking shallow, high-grade, existing, and historic gold deposits, the best strategy in recently depressed markets. The company is focused on the Cataneva Gold Project in the Pinos Bonanza Gold District in Zacatecas, Mexico. Initial production in the Monera Cataneva mine is about 50 tons per day with one shift and is expected to expand to 150 tons per day with three shifts. Excalibur has a stated goal to pay dividend, and with a 16 cent share price, the intended yield would be 6.25%. Learn more about Excalibur Resources by visiting their website, ExcaliburResources.ca, or be sure to click on the Excalibur logo on the homepage of our website, EllismartReport.com. And you are a shareholder of your own volition, and even though this segment is sponsored by them, you received no personal compensation. You bought shares in the company. Yes, I did. And so I'd been, really, before they even became a sponsor for your program, you know, I'd been looking at it, and it's go to here. Uh, it lives right here in Mexico, like me, and we've talked quite some time, for probably six months or so, about trying to find the time to go over and visit the properties to really see what they had. So it was coincidental when you told me, you know, several weeks ago that Excalibur is going to be the sponsor for our segment. So it's like, hey, this is cool. You know, because we're already looking at this company, you know, is, uh, do we want to own it or whatever? And so I immediately took a small position myself. You know, it's still sitting there really close to where I bought it. But like all the resource shares, nobody's going anywhere for a while here in this current environment. It's all about just accumulating, finding a list of companies that you like. Never put all your eggs in one basket, but you need a, you need a list, whether that's a half a dozen or 10 or, or 20, depending on how many different companies you, as an investor, feel like you can manage. But no, it, it's Caliber's turning out to be an interesting story here. And again, I love it when there's a way to start making some money. I mean, to have revenue coming in. I say so many of the small exploration companies are, are just that pure exploration companies they're still looking for something still trying to define the resource they need more cash they always seem to need more cash and what does that mean for so many of the companies they've got to sell more stock and it's like oh my god you know after a while you kind of get tired of these stories and you start looking for those uh, smaller even if they're small companies that have either got some production that can defer the future exploration costs so I, I love this story so it's really coming together here to me in the last few days as you said a while ago maybe they still need to raise money in the future i don't really know it probably depends on what kind of revenues we start generating here out of these stockpiles it's, a, it's an interesting story now and I, I love the fact of revenue coming in well dudley it's always a pleasure to speak with you thanks again for joining me today on the program you bet great to be with you i've been speaking with dudley baker of commonstockwarrants.com dudley is a shareholder of sponsor excalibur resources Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. The preceding segment has been sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited, trading on the CNSX as XBR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur Resources is a Toronto-based emerging junior gold producer focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines that include a gold mine currently producing in Zacatecas, Mexico.
Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Oh, hi, Alice. It's nice to be joining you again. Catch us up with the latest doings with regard to Alkane Resources and the Dubbo Zirconia Project, and of course, the Tommingley Gold Project. A lot's been going on. Obviously, the two projects are advancing now at a fairly busy pace, uh, but with Dubbo, first of all, I think we've talked previously about the joint venture we put in place with Tribarker, the Austrian special metal alloy company. There now, we have a deal with them that will take uh, or help us, first of all, produce high-quality ferro-niobium, and then uh, also they'll take all of the output so that was a a good thing to get out of the way. The environmental impact statement is in with the government and hopefully in the next week or so goes to the next major step which is public exhibitions and so it'll get reviewed by uh, the public and any other interested parties. Big steps in that area. Meanwhile we continue on our marketing exercise to make sure we can sell all of our products and the financing side of it's also pushing forward and fortunately there are some glimmers out there, a glimmer of hope out there that the finance world has started to improve and we do see some Certainly in the debt market, some substantial funding become available. So that's Dubbo in a nutshell. And then Tommingly, the construction's about 70% completed. So we're on target for a, probably a February start-up to start producing gold at this stage. Gold market's still a bit nervous. It's still a bit fragile and swings pretty dramatically from time to time. But given that the Australian dollar has weakened against the US dollar at Gold price has gone up reasonably strongly in the last month, so we're now looking at a, a pretty good Australian dollar price, which should see us producing around about $25, $30 million a year cash flow. So that'll be great to get that project up and running, and that'll be doing that cash flow during 2014. So, yeah, a lot, lot happening and uh, all good news. You have a new mining-friendly prime minister in Australia. You've done well under a Labor government. Do you think you'll do even better under a mining-friendly Conservative government? Look, we believe so. I guess Conservative governments tend to claim that they're more business-friendly. They're certainly claiming to be more mining-friendly. That's uh, because one of their first plans is to remove the mining tax, which the previous government put in about two years ago. Uh, And that was a tax on excess profits, as they called it, which is an interesting terminology in its own right. Uh, They're also talking about revamping or removing the carbon tax which we've had imposed on us also for the last year or so. So if they can do those things in the next six months, it'll certainly be a positive step forward for us. Now what about New South Wales? Will that have anything to do with the regional government and your projects? Not specifically, although the New South Wales government has been a conservative government now for about three years, so um, that's had some changes. The state governments tend not to have dramatic impact on the industries generally. Um, You certainly would hope that a conservative government would be more pro-mining, but in New South Wales they've still got a few issues that they've got to sort out, and mainly to do with land use conflict. We have mining operations conflicting with prime agricultural land and and those sorts of issues. So that one still hasn't been resolved very clearly. Uh, There's still some ongoing problems, but again, fortunately, it doesn't impact on where we operate. How close are you to production with regard to DZP? Look, at this stage, the target is still early 2016, so the the key steps for us now are, as I've mentioned, the EIS is in with the government. It's about to go through the next stage. We believe that should be approved by the middle of next year, and that should line up pretty well with our financing program. It's a big amount of money. We're talking about a billion-dollar project, so there's a lot of work involved in putting that 
that in place. The current belief is that that should be around the middle of next year as well. If we can do that, and also at the beginning of next year, maybe bring forward some of the long lead items, including things like doing detailed design. If we can do all the engineering detailed design, it'll start that at the beginning of the year. Put the order in for some of the long lead items, and one of our biggest is a sulfuric acid plant. If we can lodge the orders for that, then once we get the final uh, approval in place plus the financing, we can go into construction in the second half of 2014. That should then lead us to production early in 2016. So the target is still achievable, we believe. Obviously still some hurdles, but we're still comfortable we can get into production early 2016. So it just takes time to put all of that in place. It's not like you could start tomorrow, even if you could. No, that's right. I mean, first of all, state approval is the important thing to get out of the way, and uh, there is a lot of bureaucracy to work our way through with that, and of course the financing. When you go out to raise a billion dollars, it doesn't matter what the project is, whether it's rare metals, rare earth, or gold, or iron ore, or something like that. It still takes a fair bit of time to put it all together. You know, I'd love to say, yes, we could start constructing uh, next month, but uh, the reality is we're still maybe a good eight to nine months away from that. Ian, once again, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Uh, thanks, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with the Managing Director and CEO of Alcan Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a discussion with Len Harris, the president of Anglo-Canadian Mining Corporation. Anglo-Canadian is a project-generating junior mining company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange, under the symbol URA.V. Today we'll be discussing their potentially prolific Princeton Copper Project in British Columbia. Welcome to the program, Lad. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell me about Anglo-Canadian Mining. You started out as a uranium company, and you still have those assets, but primarily now we're focusing on copper, correct? Well, yes. At the present time, uranium is not exactly in favor, so we sort of set them off to the side, and we're concentrating on what we would call our flagship property, which is the copper property adjoining the Copper Mountain Mine here in British Columbia. Now, something that's very significant about the Copper Mountain property, it's a fantastic property. It has a partner. Mitsubishi, out of Japan. How does this bode well for Anglo-Canadians' Princeton property? It's quite a bonus. I mean, number one is there's a contract for all the concentrate that they produce. One of the unknown things is that the property that we own and control 100% of has been adjoining the Copper Mountain project for quite some time, and yet nobody has ever drilled it. And we have the same geology as Copper Mountain. It's almost identical. All of our drill core resembles almost to a T what the Copper Mountain mines is coming up with. And so from a geological point of view, it's almost identical. So you say the drilling is almost identical. Is there anything that you can talk about, or would that be premature? Uh, No, it's not premature. We did a three-dimensional induced polarization and a magnetic survey over a small area of our property. It's two and a half kilometers by one kilometer is the grid size. Within that grid, we identified four targets. We are actually drilling one of them now. This would be our 26th hole, I believe. And we have copper in almost 80% of our holes. We're starting to establish a resource. The last holes we drilled in 2012 and the current holes we're drilling now in 2013 are probably our best holes yet. So we seem to be heading in the right direction. There's an old historic shaft about 350 meters 
to the west of where we're drilling, and that shaft contains a lot of copper and a lot of copper staining. Therefore, we feel that by heading in that direction with our drill holes, we should be able to encounter copper mineralization pretty well all the way there. Why hasn't anyone touched this property yet? How is it even available? Well, that's a good question that I can't answer. That Copper Mountain mine has been mined since the turn of the century. A company by the name of Granby Mining had it for quite a while. Then Newmont Mining took over and they mined out the what we call the Ingerbell Pit. They actually moved the highway into Princeton seven miles in order to mine out that particular ore body because it was a very rich ore body. Since then, copper prices have fluctuated. The cost of power, electricity fluctuates and definitely moving higher as the years go on. Newmont sold the claims and the mine and the mill and everything else, the old existing mine and mill, to a company called Similco, who in turn sold it to Copper Mountain Mining. And since they purchased it, they've done a lot of drilling. They've probably had three or four drills going at the same time. All of the copper within that area is on a contact between the volcanic rocks, which exist on their property and ours, and these intrusives. The intrusives are basically rocks that have intruded into the volcanic rocks, and in doing so, created a lot of heat and friction, and that's what melted all the mineralization and formed pools of copper. So that's what we look for. We look for these pools of copper, and they're identified either by surface showings or by the geophysics that we did. Right now, Copper Mountain have identified pits one, two, three. The Ingerbell pit is a known commodity, and they've also identified another zone called the Oriel zone and the Rifle zone. Those two blasts ones that I mentioned have yet to be mined, but uh, I understand that according to the results, the Oriel deposit has some very high-grade material in it. Now, what's happened with pit number three was the largest pit, and Copper Mountain went and drilled holes below the pit, like through the bottom of the pit, and came up with a very substantial ore body with long intersections of copper and higher grades. So they're building up their resource right at the present time, and for the past year they've announced a 5 billion pounds of copper that they've identified. However, they have not included the results from their latest drill holes. So we're estimating that they probably have about 7 billion pounds of copper on that property right now. And Mitsubishi are buying all the concentrate, and Mitsubishi assisted them in raising $320 million from Japanese banks in order to build the new mill that they have, which cost them about a half a billion. Fortunately for us, one of our targets is only four kilometers, or say three miles, from that new mill, and that's where we're drilling now and getting good results. Do you expect, if you find what you believe you're going to find, that Mitsubishi will become involved in Anglo-Canadian? Well, I have no doubt. We have an agreement with Copper Mountain right now where they are providing us with assistance and expertise. They've had a lot of experience drilling all the holes that they've drilled, and they're assisting us. They've looked at all our drill core. In return for this assistance and the use of some equipment and their expertise, we have given them first right of refusal on an offer to purchase the property. So in other words, I've got two foreign groups interested in getting involved and doing a joint venture with me. If one of them should make us an offer to buy the property, 
Copper Mountain has the rights to match it. What does that mean potentially for shareholders of the company? Anglo-Canadian is an exploration and development company. We're not miners. By having someone take over the property, not the company, just the property, somebody with the experience and the mining expertise, I think it would be great for our shareholders because that would provide us with a lot of cash and enable us to use that money to follow up on some of the other properties that we have in our portfolio. So basically, you see yourself as a project generator. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what most junior companies hope to do, is to find a major company as a partner. Well, this is fascinating. I noticed you have claims for copper, gold, silver, and palladium. Are these some of the aspects of your portfolio that you plan on developing down the road? The palladium that we intersected is on the Copper Mountain properties that we own. However, it is not included in the project we're working on now. We're working on specific claims. The palladium that we discovered a couple of years ago is on another portion of our property. We have yet to do a geophysical program there which will help to identify perhaps the source of that palladium because it comes with high-grade copper as well. That would be separate from any deal we make on the existing property that we're drilling. Now, Copper Mountain stock is at about $1.93. And you You've got a four cent stock. How big is your float? What sort of upside potential is there with your own stock now sitting at four cents? Well, first of all, Anglo Canadian, the IPO on this company was done in 1980, and at that time it was called Guardian Resources. And I got involved in the late 90s with this company. We did a big exploration program in Wyoming, and we actually found diamonds. At that time, we had located five diamond pipes. And we got a lot of support from the Geological Survey of Wyoming. And our stock shot up to about $4.65, I think, was the high. And shortly after that, there was a very negative event that took place. It was uh, called Briex, which many of your listeners may be aware of. But that pretty well killed the junior markets for quite some time. As a result, we had trouble keeping the claims. But I did get Kennecott to come in because they were involved in diamonds in northern Canada and two of their top geologists in the diamond sector came to Wyoming and did a, an analysis on the pipes that we found, and unfortunately, they felt that the pipes were not large enough to be economic. And so even though we found gem-quality stones, we basically gave the properties up. We leased some of them from the BLM and some of them from the, uh, the state. Where is the share structure of your company? The share structure dates back to 1980, so that the company company has about 1,300 shareholders right now. The number of shares out right now would be 57 million shares, but because it's been trading for so long and because of the number of shareholders we have, we aren't concerned about the float because the float really is minimal and some of the shareholders have been in there for like 30 years. So I would say that the float right now would probably be about 47 million shares. And what is your background, Len? My background is that I was a stockbroker for 20 years. My whole career as a broker, I did uh, a lot of IPOs for oil and gas and, of course, mining companies. I took some geological courses at UBC to enhance my knowledge. And, of course, I learned a lot by just by reading reports and dealing a lot with geologists. I know a lot about geology, but enough to be dangerous, as they say. I never make decisions without consulting with my consulting geologists and project geologists. Well, I've known you for many years, Lynn, and perhaps this is the most exciting news I've heard with regard to your company and the Princeton Copper Project. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's a very 
very exciting project. I mean, our property is so ideally located, we can drive to the property on pavement to within four kilometers of where we're drilling right now. And then the whole property has got a network of good gravel roads as well. So access is very good, and we're very close to a mining community that, you know, has been recognized as a mining community for a large number of years. So as far as an address is concerned, it's very tough to get a better one than we have right there. Well, Len, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. I look forward to receiving more updates from you during the coming months. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Well, thanks a lot, Ellis. I appreciate being here. I've been chatting with Len Harris, the president of Anglo-Canadian Mining Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol URA.B. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartreport.com. Today I'm speaking with Mark Lasky, the CEO of the Psychic Friends Network. The Psychic Friends Network is a publicly traded company trading on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board under the symbol PFNI. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The Psychic Friends Network is the most recognizable name in the world as far as the business of psychic consultation is concerned. Take us through the network as it was in the 90s on TV with Dionne Warwick and bring us into the 21st century. Well, back in the 1990s, pretty much the only way we marketed was through television television, a little bit of radio, and the only way to connect to one of our psychics was through the telephone. It was billed to their home phone. That alone was incredibly successful, but what I like to say is we really succeeded beyond anyone's expectations with one arm tied behind our back, because it was the only way to connect was through a phone. We think the mobile application is going to be the biggest thing of all time, where people can just be on their mobile phone and look at different psychics that are available and click buttons and connect instantly. On the website, we have video chat where you can see a psychic, you can connect to them audio or video chat. We also have text messaging and the regular old phone line if you prefer that as well. You could have a question about anything. You pull out your smartphone, click on the app, and you get your question answered. And you also be able to connect on your iPad as well, your tablets, your iPhones, and websites, or you can just call directly. Now, I'm not suggesting to our audience that anyone gets psychic counseling. How many people read their horoscopes online or on their phones every day? There are millions of folks who at one time or another have actually gone to see a psychic in person or have ventured out online to get answers to questions about the future. How will you translate that into revenue for the company? To address your point, we always say we're an entertainment company. For for entertainment purposes only is the disclaimer we used to have to say, and we actually love it because it is entertaining. A lot of people just like to check their horoscopes every day. Other people want to get it more in-depth. They want to know what's going to happen. During uncertain economic times, more and more people want someone to speak to. Some people like to maybe see a psychiatrist. Some people like to speak to their friends. Some people want to call a psychic. So basically, you're talking to a quote-unquote friend. That's why we came with the name Psychic Friends because it is very much like a friend. In fact, it is that way. you could actually call the same person and connect with them each time that you call. And you can create a relationship like a friend. Next time you call back or contact them through our mobile app or through our video chat, they could say, hey, Mark, how are you? I remember you. So how's it going with your wife? Or how's it going with your brother? How's your job? You know, they can follow up. I know that one of my peers in the world of investments has purchased stock in your company. I'm a shareholder. You're about to launch a large media campaign. The word will be out all over again. If folks learn that you're publicly traded and at a penny, one would think, although there are absolutely no guarantees, that there might be some upward momentum in the stock. And that's why you're on this particular program. You know, I may be biased, but to me, it's it's a natural. It's got the brand name people remember. It's got new technologies. 
It worked tremendously in the 90s, grossing upwards of $150 million a year in the 1990s just with telephone. Not only is it a bigger market because of different ways to connect, but we feel the market is now skewing a little younger. We're getting more and more young people who are connecting because of things like our technology who wouldn't have called previously. We're also international because anybody now can connect through their website or their mobile phone anywhere in the world. So yeah, the sky's the limit. We're very excited about our future. What kind of marketing are you doing right now? Again, my background is in production and television, so I'm very excited to announce that we just finished a brand new commercial. It's a jingle where there's going to be a song about calling the Psychic Friends Network, and I think people will be really excited to hear it. And I think it's really high quality, like we've always done high quality productions. I think that it's going to be very exciting, and it's going to take over the market again, like our old commercials used to. So what's your background? I personally came out to Los Angeles to become a producer. I went to USC Film School for a year and ended up starting a production company with a friend. We ended up falling into the infomercial production business. And it was my father who originally launched the Psychic Friends Network back in 1992. They landed Dionne Warwick to host the show because she was an actual client of the psychic that we got named Linda Georgian to host the show. So Dionne Warwick did not want to shoot it in Baltimore. She only wanted to shoot in LA. And because of Dionne Warwick's refusal to go to Baltimore, I ended up getting the job producing the first Psychic Friends Network infomercial, which went on to become the number one infomercial for about five years straight, maybe seven of nine years, I believe, in in the, the reports they used to do on that. It led to a very successful production career for myself. And it wasn't until just a couple of years ago I decided that, hey, you know, we still have this brand name. We really need to relaunch this. People still remember that brand name. Anybody over the age of 20, I would say, completely remembers it and gets it. They get it when you tell them, oh God, you're back. That makes sense. I love it. New technologies, old brand name. One of the things I'm passionate about is when they take an old building and they modernize it with new amenities. Uh, I always had this great idea, I thought, to take an old Ford Thunderbird and put in GPS navigation and DVD players and all the new technologies. That's sort of what we're doing. We're taking an old brand, old technology and making it new again. I'm passionate about that. The technology is really in place now for you to monetize this globally. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I say, why didn't we do this sooner? But I think you're right. Timing is everything. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Mark Lasky, the CEO of the Psychic Friends Network Incorporated, trading on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board under the symbol PFNI. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. Get out your crayons and write this down ellismartinreport.com that's ellismartinreport.com in this segment i'm speaking with greg johnson the president and ceo of prophecy platinum prophecy platinum trades on the tsx venture exchange under the symbol nkl and on the otcqx as pnikf prophecy platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of platinum group metals pgm projects in politically stable mining friendly jurisdictions prophecy's 100 percent owned wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back. Thank you. Give us a brief summary of Prophecy Platinum. Well, Prophecy Platinum is a development stage platinum palladium focused exploration development company. And we have two projects in Canada, a world-class scale open pitable deposit up 
up in the Yukon called Wellgreen, and then a second project called Shakespeare that's located in the Sudbury Mining District, which is the largest regional producing area in North America for platinum and palladium. My experience with platinum and palladium relates directly to the automotive industry and catalytic converters. Do you see any change in that demand for catalytic converters as automobiles become more quote-unquote green? In terms of a change in demand relative to improving or increasing environmental requirements and regulations, over time, the trend has been towards a greater amount of platinum and palladium, which have the catalytic activity to basically eliminate the smog and the pollutants that are coming out of the exhaust. Over time, we've seen the quantity of those metals go up in order to meet higher standards. The industry has been able to achieve some reductions, so better efficiency of the use of those metals. But we would expect that the trend will continue, particularly in the developing world where pollution has become, particularly smog, has become such an issue. China and India would be good examples where they are going to be starting to adopt more stringent standards, which would mean more catalytic converters, not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. And with the rapid increase in the market for automobiles anyways in those countries, you know, already China is the same size market for automobiles as the United States. There's going to be, we believe, significant growth and increase in demand for particularly platinum and palladium. Even though many of us now see China as this great industrial power, compared to the U.S., there are fewer cars on the road per capita, much fewer. Yeah, no, it's really striking. In fact, there was a a relatively recent report by Fidelity looking at automobile growth in various countries around the world. And they took a look at, in that study, some data that was put together by the World Bank that looked at the number of automobiles per 100 drivers in various countries. And as you can imagine, the United States was near the top of that at about 90 vehicles per 100 drivers, and much of Europe was in the same area. And the reference line they were using was GDP per capita, so kind of a wealth factor. And what was striking is even though the Chinese market is as large in total vehicles as the United States, China has huge catch-up potential in terms of where they sit on that curve. Currently, you know, it was showing in that study about three cars per hundred drivers, and their GDP per capita would suggest more like 10 would be uh, if they were in trend with the other countries around the world based on GDP per capita. And so just the sheer catch-up to where they probably should be anyways, plus the growth potential as they become a more mature developed economy is striking in terms of the number of vehicles that it's likely looking at. And because their environmental standards are increasing so much to deal with their smog and pollution issues, uh, I think this is going to be a huge boom for uh, platinum and palladium consumption, which is really the only application for catalytic converters for eliminating those pollutants. We're seeing some occasional spikes in volatility in the platinum and palladium prices. What do you attribute that to? Well, because of the concentration of production, particularly out of South Africa, about 75% of the world's platinum and palladium comes out of South Africa. And in fact, if you add up Southern Africa and Russia, it's over 90% of the world's production. There are a number of really structural features which make it a challenge for the South African mining industry to be able to maintain production. Production for platinum peaked in 2006 and for palladium mining production peaked in 2004 and it's been falling in both metals since that point. In fact, if we look back over the last six or seven years, production's been falling at 
2 to 3% a year on average, and last year was a huge drop out of uh, South Africa. A lot of that's being driven by social unrest, strong labor unions who have been staging strikes and, and other events, and the sheer fact that the sector, because these mines down in South Africa are very deep, they're narrow horizons, which means your costs are high, you're, you're not really able to mechanize the mining, and because of the depth they're mining at a kilometer or a kilometer and a half depth, typically in these mines. Their cost structure is very high. Well, with production costs of near $1,700 an ounce in South Africa and a spot price of near $1,500 an ounce, are the majors turning to the politically stable and economically more friendly Canadian Yukon? Yeah, there's no question that major producers are going to have to be looking at where they can diversify their production if they've got these issues of labor and rising energy prices and social unrest in, in their key production areas. And Zimbabwe has also thrown in nationalization to, into the mix just for <laughs> good measure. The challenge has been that that's been the focus of the industry in that area, and that is a very enriched area. It's been one of the primary producers. There hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of those regions, Southern Africa and Russia. I think there will be, but this is a situation where right now where there's very few development stage projects even out there to be looked at. Ours up in the Yukon is one of the projects that with 7 million ounces, which is definitely world-class in scale already, it really stands out as a project that's unusual because it's also amenable to low-cost open pit mining production our cost structure is going to be much, much lower than these deep underground mines. And so, you know, we could have one of the lowest cost producers in the world. And the other benefit of open pit mining is that it's very scalable. You can build these projects at different scales and be able to increase production. And with a deposit this large and with highway access to the project and other infrastructure that's needed for development, this could be a a very promising project, certainly for our company, but also for larger companies that might be interested in looking at acquisitions in the space. Greg, another great interview. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Alice. We look forward to being back to update you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by Xterra Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol XAG.V. Xterra plans to become a mid-tier producer of silver and base metals through the development of its Bilbao deposit located in the central Mexican mineral belt in the state of Zacatecas, as well as through additional exploration and acquisition opportunities. Find Xterra on the web at xterra.ca. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Great to be back with you, Alice. Now, we had an announcement last week that the Fed was going to continue quantitative easing, and then we saw a rally at the end of that particular day, and then the sell-off continued. It seems that no sort of Fed announcement or continued mass printing of currency is going to give us the kind of continued upswing in the market that we used to get when these sort of announcements were made. Are those days just gone? Well, it's getting tougher and tougher to predict. What I would say is, first of all, I was awakened by Bloomberg on the day of the announcement, prior to the announcement. They asked me what I thought. I said, I really don't think they will taper, but if they do, I said it'd be monumental, even if it's only like 10 or 15 billion, like a lot of us thought might take place. 
And the reason I said monumental is it basically would signal to the markets that the Fed really believes that they have things under control and that they can start tightening up their monetary policy. Uh, of course, that's not what took place. Bernanke said now very clearly that they're going to let the data determine what kind of tightening they'll do based on the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. It's basically begging for higher official inflation. Of course, anyone that goes out and pays for groceries or drives a car around or pays for insurance or anything like that knows there's much higher inflation than the official government figures. So coming back, the rally, which really was quite an enthusiastic rally, got a lot of us prepared that maybe this was it, that we're going to move up and we'd see some follow through. I'm just too old and seasoned. Although I was excited for the day, I just wanted to wait and watch market activity for a few more days. And obviously, as you said, pretty much all the gains that were made on that announcement have fallen back a few days later. So now we ask, well, what's really going on? One, I would say that the bottom, the intermediate bottom is still in. I could be proven wrong for that to happen. You'd have to see the $18 level pierce the downside in silver, and you'd have to say I think it's 1100 and change in gold. And I think those will hold. But what this means is that we've got a lot more waiting, I guess, to take place before we really see significance. The problem with forecasting or timing these things is not only is there intervention in these markets, which makes it difficult, but the other thing is the reality that there's black swans out there. I mean, there could be an event that takes place and all of a sudden you see gold and silver up limit day after day for two or three or four days in a row. I'm not forecasting that, but you have to keep that in mind. You have to keep that in the back of your mind because there are so many uncertainties out there. And now there's really a push or a standoff that's getting more and more deliberate in the mainstream financial press, which is something we talked about on one of the earlier shows where you've got the Anglo-American axis vying for power versus basically the BRICS. And Putin really kind of put Obama in his place here with the Syria thing. What does that have to do with monetary policy? Well, it has a lot to do with it from the aspect that it's a power struggle. It's a power struggle politically because all money is really created out of central banks. So if you've got an Asian or BRICS consortium with Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa on one side and the Anglo Empire on the other side, which is basically the UK and the United States, now you have a lot of pushing back and forth. And really at this point, it looks as if the BRICS kind of have the upper hand. And there's a lot of people that are getting out of the dollar one way or another, meaning nation states that are trading amongst themselves in their own currencies. So it's far from over. I think the underlying fundamentals really make a strong case that gold and silver will continue to move higher. But it is very discouraging when you see a big pow like we saw and then see it erased, you know, within a couple of days. I think you probably already previously answered this question, David, but do you expect any October surprises? Do we usually have them? I can't recall. Well, I think we talked about that a couple of shows ago. I somewhat do expect an October surprise, and it'd be more on the equity side. I mean, any measure that you use that's substantive on the stock market generally, it's way overvalued. There aren't good underlying fundamentals. Certainly, if you go on a company-by-company basis, there are some that are heavily cash and doing quite well. 
but the general equity market is overextended. It's going on vapors. There's lots of cases to be made that it's ready for a fall, a substantial one. October can be very hairy for the stock market. So it wouldn't surprise me to see a sell-off in the general equity market sometime during the month of October. And to further that, coming back to the big rally that we had on the Fed's announcement of not tapering, we saw gold up, I think it was 4.5%, so it was up about 6%. The Dow was only up 100 points. I mean, it was really, it, it turned around and started going up, but certainly not to the percentage level that the metals did. And as the metals sold off, the Dow actually sold off as well. So it's one of those back to kind of all markets moving together for a while. It's hard to get a clear leader in this market. And what that really shows, if you're objective, is there's confusion, there's uncertainty, and people really don't know where to put their money. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Xterra Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol XAG.V. Xterra is a Toronto-based resource company, and their primary project is the Bilbao Silver-Zinc-Lead-Copper Deposit, situated in the Panfio Natera district of Zacatecas, Mexico, approximately 50 kilometers south of the state capital of Zacatecas, where Xterra is currently completing a bankable feasibility study. Between the company's Bilbao, Laguna, and Panfio projects, Xterra has a resource of 100 million silver equivalent ounces, including 33 million ounces silver in 43101 compliant resource. Zacatecas is a well-known mining district with infrastructure in place. Mining opportunities are both open pit and underground. There are no significant environmental issues, and there is an available local workforce there, as well as goods and services for development of the projects. You can find a full investor prospectus on Xterra's website. Just log on to xterra.ca or find their logo and click through on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. And we're back. When we see gains in these junior mining stocks, and we've been seeing it for a while, there's usually a sell-off on gains or a sell-off on news. And where I'm headed with this is penny stock market makers. They're not helping at all, are they? Well, they're not. There's some large short positions and some really good companies, as you know. But I did do an update for our members a few days ago. And what I noted in that update was that there's uh, higher bottoms. And vis-a-vis, -vis, I think it was HUI and I believe another index. I looked at two of them, both indicating that it's very subtle. But nonetheless, it looks as if the bottom is in in the mining equities. I know they're extremely low. I know they're very undervalued to where they should be and all of that. All that I agree with. But nonetheless, you have to look for these subtle clues. And the subtle clue is that they're making higher lows. And that's an indication. And normally, the equity market in the mining sector does precede a rally in the middle itself. So I'm still pretty convinced that the bottom is in on a intermediate-term basis. But uh, again... It looks like it's going to take more time than any of us want to take place with the caveat that, you know, there is something out there, black swan-wise, that could ignite these markets and, you know, no one can really forecast that. And we just don't know what that could be at all, do we? Well, it could be a lot of things. I mean, we could talk for hours on the possibilities, but one is essentially around the debt markets, the bond market. Bernanke basically said we're not going to tape. I mean, that's a very clear signal to the other nation states that the United States has no intent of having any kind of sound monetary policy. In other words, they're basically saying we're going to print to infinity. Well, if you print to infinity, that means that the currency goes to zero. That's what it means. So there might be action on another nation state that says it's very clear what the U.S. is going to do. They're going to do nothing. They're going to do nothing to rein in this ridiculous amount of monetizing or easing the zero interest rate policy forever in 
until they get their unemployment where they want. So this causes a great deal of consternation in other nation states because it affects them because the dollar is still the global reserve currency. So how long are they going to take it? And the answer is, I don't know, but they've already made pay, meaning the BRICs primarily have made great moves and strides to protect themselves and primarily what they've done is they have usurped the dollar. They've gone outside of the dollar domain to make settlements amongst themselves. And this will continue. So there is a you know, big power play, as we talked about earlier. And, you know, how, when, and we know why, but how and when it's going to unfold, really no one can forecast. Well, this is the sort of thing you write about each month and more on The Morgan Report. Tell our new listeners how they can subscribe. Yeah, just go to themorganreport.com and check out the website. You can get on our free Twitter feed, our free YouTube channel, or our free weekly e-alert letter. And I want to say that the next month uh, I'm working, as we speak almost, on why I believe that the major commodity cycle is not over. And I think it's a very sound argument. So there's a lot of people out there that, you know, gold has peaked, silver's peaked, commodities have peaked. It's over, it's downhill, you know, should have got out or whatever they're thinking. I'm going to build a case, and I think it's, it is an airtight, but almost I'm the strongest case I can on why the commodity cycle is not over. Not to say that China isn't, you know, overheated and all the other arguments that you hear, but I'm going to make a very solid case on uh, why the major secular bull market commodities is far from over. We look forward to reading that. David, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with analyst and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. The preceding segment has been sponsored by Xtier Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol XAG.V. Xtier plans to become a mid-tier producer of silver and base metals through the development of its Bilbao deposit located in the central Mexican mineral belt in the state of Zacatecas, as well as through additional exploration and acquisition opportunities. Find Xtier on the web at xtier.ca. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 